0: Welcome to the Film Links Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 104,
1: World War II Drama. Drama. Is it really only Drama. the fourth episode? It is. I mean, it's been a lot of World War II movies, but still only four episodes containing all of those movies.
0: So it is. So it is. Anyway, this week on the show, we are going to be uh, taking a look at movies that deal with the drama aspect of the war, um, both in basically tone, more like
1: on a civilian level, yeah, in general,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. But also, you know, looking at it from that kind of dramatic thematic angle as well. So, talking about um, these are all movies with a very clear concept of what the war is. Um, and they have messages built into built into them. They're very well dramatically structured. Um, they're telling dramatic stories for a purpose that involve the war, which is kind of the, the heart and soul of drama as a genre. Yeah. Um, yeah. which I feel like kind of gets lost sometimes because drama kind of encompasses a, a lot of a lot of movies. Like it, it, it yeah, is both is and isn't a genre. It's a little right. befuddling. In that manner. But Jonathan, what specific movies are we going to talk about on the show today?
1: All right. Well, first up, we're talking about Paisan, which is the sequel to Rome Open City, which, as we've mentioned, uh, we covered back in our world tour in season one of the show. So we're uh, going to continue that. And that was directed by Roberto Rossellini. Um, not, and it was nominated at the Oscars for Best Screenplay. Um I'm surprised but, that was it. Yeah, I know. But it also, is this surprising. is
0: 1946, so like, it's, foreign movie foreign movies as like in in the concept of art of being artistic is just hasn't is just starting in actuality, yeah. and it hasn't even kind of crept into public perception yet. That doesn't happen right. until like the late 50s, early 60s. Um, this yeah, is like a lot of going to into yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, This is, I mean, literally the beginnings of neorealism. And we're going to kind of roll that into a discussion of the entire war trilogy, which Rome, Open City, Paisan, and Germany Year Zero comprise, uh, which were all made between 45 and 46 or 47. Um, So, yeah, these are films that were made, you know, as the war is ending, it's barely over and Rossellini is making these films about the people that were in them. Uh, and then we'll be talking about Army of Shadows from 1969, shifting from Italy to France, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville and adapted by uh, adapted from Joseph Kessel's 1943 book of the same name. Uh, and this is about the French resistance. And finally, we will be talking about uh, Steven Spielberg's um world war ii opus schindler's list from 1996 uh which won at the oscars (gasps) best picture best director best adapted screenplay best cinematography best set decoration best editing best music and was nominated for best actor best supporting actor best costume design best sound and best makeup it's based on the
0: (laughs) it's like when you get to the end of a uh pharmaceutical commercial Back when we used to listen yeah, right. to commercials on TV, some some of you younger people might have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> um, and they just rattle off all of the all of the symptoms at the very end. These are symptoms of being one of the greatest movies of all time. It's definitely um, on one of those <laughs> list. It's one of those movies that is <laughs> yeah, just right. held up there as one of the best of all time. Probably not in yeah. anybody. Well, it might be in some people's top tens, but not on an over uh, consensus top ten, but it's probably in a lot of top 100s.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and is based on a book called Schindler's Ark by Thomas uh, Keneally, uh, which is in itself based on the uh, life of the actual businessman, Oscar Schindler, uh, who saved thousands of Jews from uh, being sent to concentration camps. And we will get into all of that when we talk about that movie.
0: Oh, for sure. But before we get into all of that, um, let's talk about the complexities of plot. And by us, I mean Jason. So Jason, take it away with the plot summary for Paisan from 1946.
2: Paisan from 1946. The film is shot in Italy following the Allied recapture of the peninsula, featuring the Italians having surrendered before the invasion of southern Italy and the Nazis being driven out after brutal fighting. It contains six episodic stories tracing the Allied invasion of the peninsula. Chapter 1. Some of the first Americans land on Sicily to scout. They attempt to cross the language barrier, connecting their humanity, meanwhile dodging the German resistance. Chapter 2 After the Allies capture Naples, a drunk military policeman has a run-in with an orphaned street urchin. Chapter 3 The story of passing ships in the night between an American soldier and a French woman who don't recognize each other after falling in love months before. Chapter 4 An American nurse struggles to cross war-torn Florence to reunite with her beloved painter-turned-partisan leader. Chapter 5. Three American chaplains, one Catholic, one Protestant, one Jewish, stay the night at a newly liberated Roman Catholic monastery and have dinner with two Catholic monks. Chapter 6. Italian partisans and downed British airmen struggle behind the lines against Nazis in the Po River Valley of northern Italy.
0: All right, Jonathan, so when we talk about this movie, obviously we have to talk about neorealism, which we've already ta- spoken about on the podcast to some extent back in a World Tour episode on Italy. Um, but specifically today we get a look at the v- one of the very early movies um, made in the neorealistic style, which wasn't a conscious thought at this time, but we see, I think, perhaps how and why that style came about very clearly in this movie we see that this was shot in 1946 like maybe one year after the war had ended and two years after little italy had been uh captured by the allies um from nazi germans um so you see that the entire infrastructure of the country is just torn down um you see that there there's no sets that's all they have to use is the torn apart Buildings and beaches and seaside castles of Italy. Things that are really expensive to emulate now. Yeah, but are just just walking into. Yeah, Yeah, they're just there. No one's going to stop them. It's not like you're interfering with the daily business of the country. The country's falling apart. Um, And you have everybody in this movie is a non actor. Um, it's basically just people who've been pulled into doing this movie who are in Italy. And it's probably yeah. people who were there for the war. The, uh, we don't have a lot of bios on these people. And if you look at their, um, they like IMDB pages, it's pretty much just this, maybe one or two other Italian films from the era, but it's basically like, Hey, you have an American accent. You're an American. We're pulling you in. You are an Italian, young Italian boy. We're pulling you in. You guys are Germans. You guys are going to be in yeah. this movie now. I kind of feel
1: like they dubbed over some of the characters, like the Americans and stuff, because sometimes, I mean, it might just be uh, a facet of the onset location sound wasn't good. I'm but, actually you know.
0: very glad you brought that up, Jonathan, because this is a key movie into how we get to things like spaghetti westerns being made down the line. Because you have casts who speak just their own languages. Yeah. You have every, pretty much everyone's just speaking in their native language. Um, and that, that's a style of filmmaking that becomes key to, it doesn't, it wasn't intended to make spaghetti Westerns and stuff of that sort better, but it did become part of spaghetti Westerns. Um, and this is kind of the beginning of that really cosmopolitan filmmaking in Italy and other places of Europe, because you just have, people from all over the world in one place at the same time. And that's who you have to make the movie. So you end up resorting to that. So it's an interesting kind of beginning of all of these very cosmopolitan movements that are going to become key to what defines artistic cinema moving forward.
1: Yeah. Which is just another facet of the way that world war two affects cinema, uh, irrevocably like aside from all of these great films that we've been covering just the physical throwing together of all of these people and cultures and talents uh has huge effects going forward uh because we have things like you're saying you know um italian and american filmmakers start interacting more and stuff like that that uh didn't happen in the same way that it did after the war happened um which I think is fascinating. And it just, it gives this film a very, uh, this is the purest World War II nonfiction filmmaking that we will ever get because World War II is over and this is made right there in World War II. Um, And we brought this up last time. It's like the farther away from the event that we get, the, the harder it is to, uh, keep the purity of it, and this is literally the purest you could possibly get in terms of World War II uh, filmmaking. And the fact that I th- I'm still kind of amazed that anybody was making uh, it seems absurd dramatic right? fiction, <laughs> fiction films during this time. Like I feel like the only thing that should have come out of World War II is documentary footage. But this is kind of it's it's documentary in the sense that it it documents um. People's interactions and their and their emotions and their uh, thought processes and their uh, allegiances you know, but it does that just through uh, good storytelling yeah um, and it's and using the people who are there feeling those things like at the time it's yeah ugh, man it's such a, an interesting film just it's, like from a historical it's
0: perspective out of such a unique scenario that it's hard to imagine something like this ever being recreated or just not wanting that scenario to ever have to be recreated again. Right, Um, right. And in a way, one, this kind of shows like who Rossellini is. Like he's just is almost like a compulsive storyteller. Like that was his response to this tragedy of his country being torn apart was like, I have to tell these stories. I have to make these movies. Um, And then two, kind of, One of the reasons why fiction is so valuable, um, when you look at things like documentary and you're like, well, this is real, this is true, this is more real than the fakery of fiction. But when you get into fiction, sometimes you get the chance to set up the stories more perfectly, more poignantly, more thematically, resonantly, um, to kind of convey the truth of the situation without showing the facts 100% 100% accurately, yeah. right? You can make up the facts, but still get to the truth in a way. And I feel like this is a really good example of that. Like, you get a really good idea of what it was like to experience the tragedy of of Italy post war, like immediately post war, basically just in the yeah. war, I should say. Um, but without, you know, using documentary footage. Although I think there is one or two bits or pieces of documentary oh, footage I slipped I think, into yeah. this movie.
1: Definitely, um, and I mean, half the time the B-roll footage just is documentary footage because it's footage of the thing, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, so let's let's talk about these uh, vignettes in themselves uh, because they're they're so broad in scope and tone and everything, uh, and yet they're all kind of unified with, in the sense that, um, and I've seen some people who've kind of reviewed this film online saying things like they kind of just all end in a almost on a vain note, like everything that that happens uh, kind of gets subverted. And I don't want to get into too many spoilers cause there's, I mean there's six different vignettes. So there's kind of a lot of spoilers in this movie, It's um, true, but it, it's one of those things where throughout the film, you just get the sense that um, in this type of really fraught and legitimately dangerous situation, you know, anything can just come crashing down at any moment. So, just for example, the very first segment uh, of the American soldier who is keeping watch over this uh, Italian woman while the other soldiers go off somewhere because she's she's helping them navigate and stuff, but he doesn't speak her language, and they start to connect and they have this really nice moment, a thing that we've seen a thousand times in films before in many different contexts, but because we're in this literal war context without setting up any stakes, we can still have a moment where he gets shot from the window in the middle of a sentence, you know, because that's where they're at. And it almost makes the whole thing feel pointless, but it also makes it feel like really true and drive home the, uh, the terrible aspects of war, even as the war is ending, like the, the, the film is covering the liberation of Italy. So, you know, the allies have basically won at this point, And yet there's still a lot of danger around every corner. And that is just kind of driven home over and over and over again
0: throughout this movie. It's true. It's true. It's actually, I'm, I was really found myself enjoying like the, um, the progression of the, of, of all the vignettes, because it actually still feels pretty unified in a manner, like from even just from like a plot perspective, like they all Mm -hmm. take place over the course of the invasion by the allies up to the point that they're all unrelated river is. Yeah. Yeah. No characters are related. um, Other than this is not one of those
1: things like, you know, like thinking back to even uh, Kieslowski's red where all of his different seemingly dis, uh, connected storylines come together at the end. No, these are just like
0: just yeah, little. All, all anthologies. Yeah, they're only connected by the the war. world events that happen yeah. in in the um, in it, over the course of the of the movie. But it is about the advancement, so it kind of feels like you're actually progressing through the story of the advancement. You just change viewpoints throughout to whatever's most prescient at the moment. Um, stick with it seal up the story and then move on, which is actually kind of nice um, for an anthology to do to not only connect everything, um, but to actually have it push forward over the course of time to, to an, to an end point in a way. Cause I feel like mm-hmm. the, the one that springs to mind just because it's on the top of my head at the moment for other reasons is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I really liked, but also it does kind of feel like you're just watching like, six different episodes that are put together and called a feature movie. Um, Mm. Whereas this is definitely, this is a feature film. It's a vignette feature film, but it is a feature film. It is cohesive um, in more than just theme.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think one of, one of the other more subtle kind of themes that runs through it and is kind of there just again, by virtue of the dictates of the setting, but it's this idea of a language barrier or a cultural barrier uh, between the people and um, trying to overcome that and uh, ways in which maybe that can't be overcome. Uh, so you think even of the segment of the African-American soldier who meets the little Italian boy and he's thinking back uh, and kind of You know, bringing up all of the things, you know, the cultural struggles that African-Americans are having in the United States at the time. And he's really melancholy about going back home because he's uh, he's like, yeah, great. I got to fight. But still, when I get back home, no one's going to like me. You know, all the terrible things that we know about uh, in America at the time. Right, 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 right. And then he follows the boy to the little you can't even call it a village anymore that he's living in. It's just this community of people who all their homes have been destroyed. They literally have nothing left. They uh, are resorted to just stealing things from soldiers and other people. And uh, his parents are dead. And, you know, again, just putting these two cultures that are both, you know, legitimately being oppressed in kind of a, a perspective with each other, uh, that are both halfway across the world from each other. Um, and so it's this really interesting way of bringing people and stories together and just kind of showing, uh, you know, what happens when they mix and putting everything in again, in a, a really big perspective. I don't know. It's just so interesting because it's a thematic connection. yeah, it's a, it's a thematic connection and it, uh, It just makes you think about more than your own current predicament, I guess, however bad that may be.
0: Yeah. 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 It's about, it's, it's often about like opening up your worldview to incorporate both your own, uh, your own suffering and other people's suffering, putting them both into context. Not that either one is lessened by the presence of the other, but they're both exactly exist and are valid. Um, and that helping other people is often a way to lessen the burdens upon yourself at the same time. Um, I do like, you know, Neo realism often gets this, um, this label of being, um, nihilistic and, you know, bleak. doom and gloom and bleak. And there are some very bleak movies in the war trilogy, which is, um. Oh gosh. <laughs> Germany, Germany year zero. Germany year zero, which <laughs> is the cap. It's it's Rome, open city, Roma Citta Aperta uh, Paisan, and then Germany year zero. Um, Germany year zero is the darkest by far. I mean, yeah. None of Rome them open and city is happily, pretty dark. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't know though. Paisan has a lot of tragedy in it, but the way the overall thing is structured, every time the tragedy happens, but the people persist. They keep persisting and we come back to the next stage and the, the liberation of Italy has continued further. Yeah. And we come back to the next station and it's continued further. And even when we face losses at the end of this movie, we know that it happens. We know that's coming. And the people who would be watching this movie and who had made this movie also knew that. So I feel like this one is almost like it embraces the tragic nature of human existence, but at the same time, Um, kind of celebrates the persistent hopefulness in the face of that tragedy that humans can can exhibit when they're pushed to their brink, which I think is really, really nice. I actually kind of like really enjoy the hopeful tones of this movie, which is surprising considering it is a neorealistic realistic movie. And in that trilogy, it's sandwiched by two things that are just (laughs) <laughs> dark i mean germany I, I i kind of knew how germany year zero would end but i didn't know how it would end
1: yeah if that made
0: sense it's so dark i don't know maybe we'll have it on the show one day well yeah i was thinking um
1: watching germany year zero just uh to complete the war trilogy this week uh if we did you know We've covered all three of these, well, except for Germany Year Zero now. But if we put Germany Year Zero with Come and See and Yvonne's childhood, it would be the darkest uh, look at World War II from the eyes of children, you know, that you could possibly get because all three of those are just so, so dark and they're all told from from the point of view of children uh, going through the war from different angles. Um, and yeah, man, Germany, Germany Year Zero is crazy dark. But I, I feel like that one has a much broader kind of commentary on Germany as a whole. I just haven't finished processing it yet, yet, yet in my own mind. That's fair. <laughs> uh, it's still just kind of amazing to me that this this war trilogy was made and was made when it was made um, and is as uh, impactful and just uh, – yeah, like going back to what you said the about the um, – the hopefulness in Paisan. The very last segment, I think is really good. Uh, Look at that, even though it ends tragically. Also, it shows so much camaraderie. um, And the fact of the American soldiers fighting alongside the Italian resistance, and then the British soldiers join them. uh, And they're all kind of helping each other out and trying to uh, survive and avoid the, avoid the Germans. Um, It's, probably the most uh, hopeful and cheerful and kind of like rallying of the segments, which is probably why Rossellini chose to end the film with that segment. Um, and you know, the other thing I, I see what you're saying about the, the hopefulness running through it, although it's not necessarily like the first thing that you take away from the film, because there is certainly not. No, it's, it's, um,
0: it's like it's buried down there. <laughs> yeah. If, if you accept the that thing, it's there at all.
1: The fact that the film is called Paisan, which is kind of a familiar way to greet someone uh, in Italy. Uh, it's like, like, hey, friend or something like that. I think using that word as the title kind of drives home that point that you're making, because ultimately it is about um, allies and friends and survival and persistence, uh, which which is it's like you said, it's buried in there, but it still does shine through. Uh, yeah, no, it definitely does. But yeah, the last thing I'd say about, uh, Paisan and especially in relation to Italian neorealism and Italian cinema in general is the fact that, uh, each of these vignettes had a different writer on it. One of them being Federico Fellini, who goes on to be one of the most, um, acclaimed Italian directors of all time. Uh, And we covered one of his films, Eight and a Half, back in our Italy episode as well. Uh, And so he was working with Rossellini and coming up through uh, some of the masters of Italian neorealism at the very beginning of his career. And uh, so that's just a really cool tie-in, again, to uh, putting this film and World War II film in a more broad context of world cinema.
0: All right, then, Jonathan. Uh, With that, let's move on. Uh, Let's jump about 20 years into the future with Army of Shadows. And one country over. And one country over (laughs) with Army of Shadows from 1969, which, while it's in French, Jason, give give us the summary in English.
2: Army of Shadows from 1969. Quiet, unassuming, glasses-wearing Philippe Gerbier is the head of the French Resistance based in Marseille. He starts off the movie being interned in a prisoner camp, from which he wrangles an escape from the grasp of the Gestapo, and then continues to fight the Nazis with every agent at his disposal. We follow the various members of a small resistance group as they are forced to the ends of their capabilities, and even their humanity, to free their country, taking on machine guns, the Gestapo, the SS, submarines, parachuting, and much more. Perhaps they're all doomed to die in this fight, but they'll make the Nazis pay for their lives dearly.
1: Man, this film is gorgeous. Like, Paisan has such a grittiness to it, Yeah. but this film is shot like a modern film. Um, I kept coming back to, which I haven't seen in a while, so may or may not be the best reference, but for some reason it reminded me a lot of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which might just be the kind of pacing and the slow kind of spy uh, thriller intrigue of it um but it's based it's filmed like a modern film even though it's from 1969
0: Yeah yeah it's quite impressive you're right it is shot mostly in shadow um with pop bright pops where they want us to have information but pretty much it's if it's almost the, noir you don't now that i think it, about it Yeah no this is noir noir lighting has definitely become the dominant theme of lighting over the past 10 to 20 years especially in tv um bright pops of color where you want it which is more of a neo-noir thing but also brought bright pops of light where you want it and if if you don't want it in the if it's not meant to be in the frame it's pretty much put into shadow um and it makes perfect sense when used in this movie obviously there's meant to be an undercover organization it's meant to be very dark very secretive um which is a perfect perfect for the tone but some of the locations they go to are just gorgeous. Um yeah. even just like the fact that they use like all of these abandoned houses with all of this really nice texture inside of them because they're worn down for their hideouts yeah. is really nice. The German bunker they go to is amazing. It's so cool. Um especially even the just firing like the, range within it.
1: The uh submarine and the airplane sets and all that kind of like there's it's just so interesting visually uh that it's I think that helps because of, um, like we were talking about a little bit off air, the the pacing of the film is not the fastest. <laughs> you know, it really oh, kind not. of takes its time, and it's one of those films where it lets you infer a lot of the story just based on whatever is happening once you jump into a scene, uh, and that also kind of makes us feel like we're we're. Uh, picking up on all of these secret happenings because, you know, it is a a secret organization. They're going behind the Germans' backs and stuff like that. And so we kind of feel like we're spying on them because we're picking up little pieces of information as the film reveals them to us. And then we've got to stitch it all together a little bit in the background, um, which makes it really enjoyable, uh, a really enjoyable watch.
0: Oh, it is. It is. It's really cool. Um, Jonathan, you were actually saying beforehand, though, that it is, it does require a lot of it, it, a lot of attention. Um, yeah. Which, at the time, I feel like we don't. Maybe we mention this sometimes in the podcast, but we don't mention it enough. But our watching habits as a society have just atrophied completely. It's we're we're yeah. so bad at watching things. We watch almost everything really passively, like with something else on, or you're doing something else while you're watching your show, or you're watching your TV show. You now have the ability to put down a movie halfway through, like you would a book, and then come back to it later. Which isn't, which might be how like you know modern movies get made a lot of the times, with the intent for them to be distributed on Netflix, so you can take that into account while you're making it. But Army of Shadows is made with the intent that you are going to be (laughs) in a dark theater, trapped for two hours watching this movie. Yeah, Um, right. And that's that's not really it, so the so the viewing the viewing situation changes a lot i would advise this is one of those movies where I advise a good cup of coffee before you watch it um mm-hmm. or while you watch it um not that it's slow not that it's boring it's just that it is it has a purposefully subdued tension to it um that is very much the the very much a point that they're making in the film that you're not going to see the danger all the time, but the danger is always there for these people. They are, they are. And they, they walk about like hanged men and women because they are hanged men and women. They all know that they're going to die in the end. Um, They all know what's coming to them, but they're doing it anyway because they see it as their duty. So yes, very, very dark, very, very intense. What do you think of the, the tonality of the acting Jonathan? Because they went for this, they went for this style where everything's very, very, very businesslike. Um, the yeah. emotions you know feel pretty repressed, but they're still evidently there.
1: Yeah, uh, and I, I like it a lot. I think one thing that I was thinking, okay, here, I'm going to try and like <laughs> combine a couple of different thoughts that I had throughout the film. But uh, I was thinking that this is, especially since we're putting these World War II films kind of in context and grouping them based on kind of their tone or their subject matter. I was thinking when the film opens with uh, our main character getting put into a, a German POW camp, and then he's talking about escaping and stuff, it kind of like naturally made me start thinking about The Great Escape and the fact that The Great Escape could have been shot like this. I mean, that was a very covert, secretive type of thing that was happening, but they chose to focus that on kind of the heroicism of it, the excitement, the sensationalism, um, which is something that we'll we'll get to as far as wh- how these films differ when we get to our overall notes. But um, yeah, that's kind of, even though this film does not take place all within a uh, uh, the POW camp, you know, you could have taken a lot of different angles with it. And the fact that it is so subdued, uh, again, just kind of, Heightens that sense of uh, secrecy, and especially on the acting side, since we're talking about uh, spies and we're talking about uh, resistance and um, going against the dominant uh, governing authority, it gives this sense of not knowing who to trust, uh, which is great. And it turns out that for the most part, most of our characters are are trustworthy, um, and the. It's, it's really nuanced the way that any betrayal like actually happens throughout the film um which I don't want to get into too much obviously because of spoilers uh, but the the fact that you know so much stuff happens off camera that we have to piece together um so many of the characters are not you know wearing their heart on their sleeve for obvious reasons it keeps you on your toes the whole time and you're trying to like make sure that the people that you're rooting for, you actually should be rooting for, uh, and they're not going to stab you or the other characters in the back at some point Um, and, and all that kind of thing. So I think that, you know, all of these things, the acting, the tone, the cinematography, it's all going into building up this, uh, this suspense and this uh, drama in a really, really masterful way.
0: Yeah. I wasn't actually sure. Even as I think, I think I know the part you're talking about, where somebody might be being betrayed. Somebody might have intended for something to happen. You don't know for sure. Um, it, yeah, there are a couple points because there
1: there are times when you know people leave. the The film almost starts with a betrayal, which I can say because it's really not that important as you go mm-hmm. along. Um, so we we start off so with,
0: deep in shadow. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so we start off with one betrayal, which sets us up to be expecting something else. Um, And, you know, just by nature of the characters and, you know, they get captured. You don't know if they're going to, you know, spill the beans, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot that goes on that uh, allows you to (laughs) be fearing for uh, the loyalty of all of the characters uh, throughout the entire thing.
0: Yeah, for sure. This film kind of almost sets up like a sort of subdued spy thriller where you're never really given a whole lot of plot. You're never really given a whole lot of exposition. Stuff just kind of happens, and you have to be paying attention to follow it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see how they make that work because it could easily fall flat on its face. Um, And I think a big part of why it works is that it's within the context of World War II. So you already feel a very passionate... Um, Sympathy towards the French resistance and you already feel a very passionate hate or anger towards the I think it's the SS in this movie Um, that are that are fighting the resistance Um, yeah you already have that kind of set up these preconceived packaged sympathies to just throw at your audience and just have it ready to go they're automatically sympathetic towards this um, and it makes makes it easier to care about this stuff that's happening right off the bat. Plus, like you said, they start off from a very interesting plot point. You don't expect to start with the protagonist getting, being arrested and put into a prisoner camp. That that isn't where you expect the movie to start. Or if it does start there, you're expecting it to flash back to something else and see how they got there. Um, but that's not the case. Um, which is quite interesting. Uh, what do you think about this movie, uh, Jonathan, being a perspective on World War II from twenty years after the fact, as that compares to Paizan's viewing of World War II, basically in the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, see, I mean, this is just about the time of um, that the Great Escape comes out. Obviously, from two very different kind of. Uh, filmmaking angles uh french filmmaking versus uh 60s hollywood uh filmmaking so we're kind of at the same thing where it's still in living memory uh for some people uh probably even many of the actors within the film but again it's got a lot of a polish on it so at this point we've had time to you know distance ourselves from the war and um kind of look back on it and refine our thoughts and our our uh feelings about it. And actually, I think the film or I'm sorry, I think that the book that the film is based on is written by a guy who was in the French resistance. So the subject matter is still very close to World War Two. Um, it's just that now we've we've been able to kind of uh, smooth out those kind of uh, roughnesses of, you know, all the different things that happened after the fallout of World War Two. But I will say just doing like a really brief Wikipedia on this uh, film and release and everything. It's interesting. And I don't want to you know speak too much about this because I'm very uninformed about um, French politics, but apparently the film was not reviewed well in France because of the fact that it was basically, like you said, it was setting up Charles de Gaulle as the very, um, he was the leader of the French resistance during world war II, And so since the French resistance is the protagonist of this film, because it is opposed to the Nazis, and that's part of making a World War II film, is anyone that's against the Nazis is is a good guy, uh, basically. Um, apparently, there was some... Uh, at the time that this film had come out, the opinion of Charles de Gaulle was not great in France, for whatever reason. That, I don't know. Um, and so, it was really... Not viewed well, even Cahiers du Cinema uh, kind of panned it, and so that kind of translated into the American reviewings and stuff like that. And then eventually, on you know even further time away from this movie, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's whole filmography starts to be reconsidered and starts to be seen for um, the artistic merit that it has. And so it's one of these that you know this film didn't get any uh, nominations or awards at the Oscars. And I think part of that is because of this weird kind of political state that it, that it comes out of. So yes, even at this point, you know, anytime you do something World War II related, you have a set of givens, but that's, I think it's interesting that this film was so close to World War II that that wasn't even completely the case at the time that the film was released.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like it's it's kind of in that interesting era where all of the people from the war are still around and still very, very, very relevant
1: and have Uh, really like strong and nuanced opinions because they were
0: there. It's a very it's a very key part of the people who are alive making and watching these films life in the 60s. It's it's almost impossible to escape the shadow, no pun intended, of of the war to get a more objective point of view. It's kind of we're actually kind of on an interesting sliding scale today from Paisan, which is very subjective, very in the moment. And it's hard Mm -hmm. to argue with because it's almost it's verges on documentary, basically, Um Army of Shadows, which is kind of in that in-between space, and then you're starting to get far enough away with Schindler's List where people who survived the war and were old enough during the war to experience it are very old. Um, Yeah, they're not the majority of the population anymore. Not the majority of the population. They don't wield the same power when it comes to critical circles or the movie-watching core anymore. Um, So you're starting to get into attempts at a more objective viewpoint of the war, Although you'll never reach a perfect objective viewpoint of the war, it it would it it would be impossible. Um, yeah. No matter how how you would present it, it would be skewed one way or the other, um, or one of the million ways you could possibly skew it. Um, but this is a very interesting in between, in 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 that regard.
1: Yeah, definitely. So Alex, this is kind of um, in terms of us moving from the quote unquote action of World War II in our last episode uh, based on our arbitrary categorization that we've done here. um, This one of this week kind of, well, I guess Python 2 to some extent, but this one has like a lot of like action in it kind of spurs out. It's not the whole driving force of the film, but what are those things that kind of push this more to a dramatic uh, type of film than say, like a, sensa- a sensationalized, uh, action y type of war movie.
0: It, this movie is very much about tension and release, and it's very, very big on building the tension for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And then when the tension pops, it's very interesting, very exciting, um, but it's done very sparingly. And that's kind yeah. of the point because our characters are never going to be free of this tension. There's never really a a moment where any of the characters can really, you know, stop and take a deep breath. They're not allowed to breathe, and therefore the audience is kind of also not allowed to breathe for the most part. Um, Also, I will say, in those moments of action, we kind of see that our characters' strengths lie in the planning and the spying and the sneaking. Um, Not really in the running and the jumping (laughs) and the killing. Even the killing. Like, the very first one
1: is... Is brutal to watch because it's kind of it's the first time that they have to, as they say in the film, eliminate someone uh, for potentially compromising them, uh, and it's clear that this little section of the resistance that we're following has never done that before. And those are always like the most brutal kinds of uh, killings to watch in films. There's, you know, obviously hundreds of films that make killing such a kind of just easy throwaway part of the film, but this film makes you kind of feel it and think about it every time that it happens because it is so sparsely included.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. It does put much more significance on every single moment like that, which is a good thing to keep in mind. If you want something elevated, sometimes the best way to do it is to use it sparingly rather than use it widely all throughout. And especially... If your
1: film is leading up to a moment like that, having set it up and not overused it uh, beforehand is going to make that ending much, much more effective. This is probably the best way I can say that without giving spoilers for this movie. Yeah, right. Last thing, though. What did you think about the use of narration
0: uh, in this movie? You're going to have to remind me a little bit. I almost don't. I almost forgot that there was narration.
1: So yeah, there is a little bit, mostly from the point of view of uh, our our main guy, uh, uh and so I think of specifically like in the very first scene when he's getting taken into the POW camp, and uh, the officer is like kind of reading over his record, and through narration, uh, the character is saying, "Carrot, stick." carrot stick like kind of emulating the thought process of the officer trying to decide whether or not he should um tr- uh, you know try to flatter this guy who's obviously very high up in the french resistance or kind of beat him down into submission uh and that kind of thing and then the scene ends and he's like all right well he decided to use the carrot for now but use it carefully and then mm-hmm. there are times when like he's in hiding uh, out in the middle of nowhere and he kind of narrates his thoughts uh, in his journal and stuff like that. But yeah, it is it's used very sparingly. Um, and I just I like to bring it up whenever narration kind of voiceover happens in a movie because it can get a bad rap. And so when it's used well, it's always interesting to kind of uh, uh, look at that and see how it was used um, and how it wasn't overused.
0: Right. Right. Cause it can easily become overused or exhausting or cop out. Right. Yeah. 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 Or just simply like delivering exposition. And this is definitely not delivering expo- exposition. This is, no, it's delivering character. Yeah. Believing, providing character complexity and dramatic interest to the scene. Um, like the scene becomes more interesting, more compelling when you have that narration of the guy waffling between whether or not to use the character to stick. Um, also conveys the stakes but also in a very non explicit manner like it's an intriguing way to do it because it's not simply stated that that it's not like at, at that point I was wondering whether or not I was going to offer him a boon or whether or not I was going to kill him um, <laughs> right it's it's done in an interesting clever and well-written manner
1: yeah all right cool well let's move on to Schindler's List the one that our listeners are probably Actually, almost definitely the most familiar with. Yeah, Uh, I guarantee most of you have seen this. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Jason set that one up for us. Schindler's List from 1993. Oskar Schindler is a capitalistic opportunist and a member of the Nazi Party in Poland. As freedoms and rights begin to be stripped from the Jewish people of Krakow, he jumps at the chance to use the Jews as a captive workforce and source of capital. In the process, his business director Itzhak Stern uses those work certificates to save what people he can. The downward spiral of terror and dehumanization of the Jews at the hands of the Nazis continues. Schindler is at first annoyed that his workforce and enamel pot factory is being interfered with, but as he sees the clearing of the ghetto and the atrocities in the camp, his heart is changed. He begins to use his position of power as an industrialist to save the people he can, even as he realizes he can never save enough.
0: Man, this film is a roller coaster. But This film is long and it is heavy.
1: Yeah. So again, kind of in comparing, in putting this film into a category, uh, uh, given the categories that we have chosen for this series, um, this could have gone in the biopic uh, episode, but I think it's much more. Um, kind of relevant here in the drama section because it gives so much more than just Oscar Schindler's life and his character arc, which it definitely does, but it also has so much to say about um, uh, the Jewish people and their experience and uh, the tragedy of the Holocaust um, that you know it's it's way broader than a biopic. it's so much more than that.
0: Yeah, no, it really, really is. It's also kind of like a deeply important film in a way. Um, It kind of is a parable on how to be a good person in a position of power helping out a persecuted group, which I feel like...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the whole thing is a journey of a very... Selfish. Very comfortable. Well, I'm going to say a very comfortable member of uh, German society. He's rich. He, you know, is industrious. He can have everything that he wants. And yes, he is selfish. Um, but he's he has no interest in stepping out of his way for anybody. And the kind of elements that slowly uh, turn him into a, very, very motivated, and um, you know, kind of stop at nothing. Hero, essentially, uh, for these um, thousands and thousands of individuals who otherwise would not have survived World War II.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a very. Obviously, we're going to talk about the 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 structure of this film and how it's put together but I don't know why I feel so drawn to the themes of this movie, but I do. Um, but I feel like there's one very, it's a thematic movie. It's true. It's true. Um, and it's meant to be that way. Um, there, I feel like the, one of the most important parts of this whole movie is very close to the end. Um, and, and what I can share about it is essentially Schindler's found out that like some money was spent on something that wasn't maybe completely necessary. Um, or was like spent on him. Um, and he was like, that could have, and then he's just starts breaking down yeah. and like doing the math on how many more lives he could have saved with that, that money. Um, and everyone else is, you know, trying to calm him and comfort him, comfort him and tell him he's done enough, but he's just like, yeah, no, there's no, there's no making up for what, what was done to these people. Um, yeah. he, he, he had, he had saved all of them, but all, all he can do is continue to try to save them. Um, and he had, by the end, he, you could tell that was the moment where you could tell how much he had changed that he really yeah. truly had flipped the line. And there are, there, there's like parts that don't make it all the way into this movie. It's established at the start of the movie that, um, Schindler isn't just a German. He is a member of the Nazi party. Um, but digging into like the He's constantly wearing that, that he's not wearing it. That's one of the first things we see him do before we see his face, I think, is we see him put the pin on Um, in contrast to the active persecution of, uh, of the Jews that we see in the opening scenes of this movie. Um, But in, in real life, uh, the real Oscar Schindler before this point in our story had actually been a spy, for the Nazi party in Czechoslovakia um, running up to the annexation of the Sudetenland, which was a chunk of Czechoslovakia that was unceremoniously annexed by Germany prior to the full-scale invasion of Czechoslovakia in Poland. Um, but he, so he wasn't just like a member of the party. He was an active, active member wow. of the party who contributed to Nazi progress and clearly they didn't want to go all the way back in time or do like flashbacks, um, to that. And you don't this think movie. they had
1: enough time for that in this movie, Alex? I don't know. It's t- hard tack on another 45 minutes to an hour.
0: It's, it, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting. It's a long movie, but it doesn't feel like any moments wasted. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah, but there is there in real life, there was an even bigger arc. Um, so this guy really, really turned a corner. Um, which is interesting because he's definitely the protagonist of the movie, but he's not the hero until maybe two thirds of the way in. Um, and even like the first acts he do, he does to help Jews and pull them out of the ghetto um, to work in his factory are done mostly by the people in his employee. Um, and yeah, ben only Kamsley very
1: is basically the makes first a wonderful proponent. turn. Yeah.
0: As, yeah. as a, as the assistant here, what, Oh gosh, what's his name in the movie? Um I wanted Stein to say or something. Yeah, Stein, Isaac Stein. Yeah, that's it. But it's spelled in the Polish style, so I, I it's hard to pronounce if you look at it on paper. but it's essentially Isaac Stein. Um, just a little more Z's in the S's <laughs> than you're used to. Um, so what do you think about the choice to use black and white in this movie, Jonathan? Because it is it is a strong choice, but it puts us in the frame of mind of stuff closer to Python. Than stuff closer to Army of Shadows.
1: Yeah, no, I love it. And I mean, I think not that long ago on the podcast, I was bemoaning the fact that uh 4-3 black and white is like not even on the table as creative choices anymore, except for, you know, like really out there art house stuff like the lighthouse. Yeah. Recently. Or if you are just
0: like a super powerful director, like you just uh, you know, have like, that you know, like Steven Spielberg or something. Yeah.
1: Um <laughs> so yeah, I love the style of this film. And uh, Spielberg actually talks about um, the fact that he was influenced by films like one that we're going to talk about uh, next time on the show, uh Shoa, and also the near-realist films. So he's like directly influenced by Rossellini's films and that kind of thing. And so he wanted it to uh, have that kind of feel and that kind of timeless feel. Um, and he even has a statement about not wanting to over-beautify any moments of the Holocaust that he's portraying. And so not doing things like putting a lot of color and costume design and like, you know, really artistically filling the frame. I mean, obviously it's shot very uh, well and aesthetic and all that kind of thing. But the black and white kind of keeps it from being so much about that kind of colorful flamboyance and more about the actual – uh, people and things being depicted. Um, and I think that we kind of have to keep Schindler's List in context of Spielberg's career. You know, uh, he's, he talks about how like he was always more inclined to go towards like a big type uh, David Lean type of a, a storytelling. I mean, we could see that in things like Writers of the Lost Ark and his other like big epic movies. And so the intentional choice to limit himself to this type of documentary style, black and white, uh, you know, Spielberg says it matured him as a filmmaker. And I think that you can really see that. And it makes him make these really, really specific artistic choices like the red jacket, like the candles, like all of that stuff um, that all go into uh, making this film have a gravity that can be felt even beyond the script and the story.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I always forget about the second appearance of the red jacket, but it's particularly devastating.
1: Yeah, it, it makes the first appearance of the red jacket even more important. Um, yeah.
0: And I was reading up a little bit about that
1: and how, and how it kind of creates this theme of how blatantly obvious the Holocaust was to those in Europe at the time. And yet how much of a blind eye was turned to it. Uh, yeah, I feel
0: like that's, yeah, it, it was a very like key theme in the movie was like the sheer amount of like gaslight lighting and playing of the innocent bystander was going on in yeah. this movie. Like, it's just, it's bad. It's bad, and like the. And the red I jacket shows, is, Oh, continue.
1: Uh, I was just say the red jacket is the moment that Oscar Schindler, uh, it's his turning point because when he rides up on the horse and he sees the uh the ghetto massacre is that and that's when he sees the red jacket and is when he starts to actually realize, um, you know this isn't going to stop. It's only going to get worse. Uh, And I'm kind of just, I'm treating my workers the way that I say I'm treating them. I mean, he was protecting them just kind of out of uh, you assume some like a human decency of like not beating his workers or murdering them or anything. Um, But when he sees the red jacket during the massacre is when he realizes that he has to do more than just, not kill them, he has to actually save them because no one else is going to,
0: yeah. Yeah, the red jacket also does a good job of cutting through the numbers. Um, yeah, you know, it's one of those things six million is a big number, um, and it does sound tragic, but there's something about us as humans that keeps us from latching on to that personally. You need to see the individual course of action that happens to a single person, a single story, to really get super attached emotionally to it. It's it's a weird bit of programming in humans, but it is what it is. Um, And they don't don't just do it with the girl in the red jacket. There are some other folks um, in the movie. There's a girl with the round glasses. glasses, And then uh, some other people who we see multiple times, uh, like the old man who is... um, I think he has one arm. He doesn't make it very far in the movie, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, That was a very sad death. Um, But there is. But those are also really important, like having those identifiable faces and names
1: um, for the way that Spielberg concludes the film, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, But I think that the entire film is almost serves the purpose that you're talking about of stripping the numbers away from this. I mean, just the fact that the film is called Schindler's List and it's about this list of names and the number of people that he can save and, you know, the uh, what that costs, like physically costs. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's so full of this taking a very cold and calculated kind of approach to the most... Um, intimately personal type of a thing which is you know namely genocide uh and so i think that that's that's the entire point of the film and the red jacket is just like the single focal point that that can be driven through the film
0: yeah this is one of the cruelest uh depictions of the holocaust i think i've ever seen in film it is that's not documentary that's not documentary this is true uh, although even in documentaries, you see the aftermath, but you don't see the process. And, and in right. this movie, even though it's all written, obviously, well after the fact, you see the gaslighting and the lies that are repeatedly told uh, to the Jewish people put in these camps. Um, like And the constant fakery is just so cruel. Like, yes, put your suitcase in this other room. You'll We'll, we'll send it to you when you get there. Or... Um, and then they're just pillaging those suitcases yeah. in the next room over. Or, you know, the constant state of denial that the people within the camps purposely put themselves into essentially to to keep hope is like, there's no way those showers that you're talking about that kill everybody exist. That's not true. Um, and all sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's an interesting look at the human psyche when pushed to the extreme, but it's also like, um, very telling of like this extreme cruelty with which this thing was done. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously the thing itself is atrocious and horrible and inhumane and unimaginable. And one of those things that can never be done that should never be done. Um,
1: but so along those lines, it's just so, um,
0: yeah, it's just so, so mean and cruel.
1: Right. And along those lines, what, what are your thoughts on Ray Fine's character who is kind of our, a stand in for the average Nazi soldier
0: or Nazi general. Even he's a really good representation of what I think the Nazi worldview should be viewed as. And it's kind of that of like a petulant child, Um, which kind of connects back to Jojo, which we talked about on the bonus podcast. Um, but also a, a very conflicted go, but this is, one. This is, yeah, he is conflicted, but also he is just like a, a, kind of like a prep school brat who is upset that he doesn't get absolutely everything he wants and has been told that he's better than everyone else the entire time. Um, and so it's just become like this monster who's also like a little whiny boy at the same time. Um, and at the he he actually surprisingly enough has an arc. He's not I know. Yeah. at all by the end. Um, and satisfyingly enough, they do show his final demise. His arc is a full circle movie. though. But it's true. Uh, but it is interesting that he improves at all, but it also shows like the malleability and like the easily influenced nature of the people who fully embrace the, the Nazi idea. Like... Schindler's able to like tw- like pull his puppet strings in like, the same way that essentially the Nazi regime pulled his puppet strings to begin with.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I there are so many really, really fascinating moments that um, a lot of times in the World War II movies, even the ones we've been talking about, the Nazis are just there to be the antagonist, um, you know, which... For the most part during the war, like as a soldier and stuff, that's all they are. They're shooting at you, so you can either shoot back or get shot. Um, but in a film like this, where we're kind of spending time higher up, we're seeing the Nazis, not just the ones in uniform on the ground. Uh, like the Ray finds even kind of debating with himself about the humanity of the Jews uh or his just like super cavalier attitude towards uh, killing them. Um, All of these things are things that uh, we don't often get to see, but that Spielberg takes and kind of dives into. And then, you know, the character, even as he's going through this inner conflict, the Nazi wins out and we just see the, the, Utterly devastating consequences of that uh, throughout the film. And, you know, the film itself, like the way that it's structured kind of does this really nice um, meta arc because we have all the stuff with Schindler. But even as we go, we're seeing kind of everyday uh, Jewish life and then we're seeing uh, them in the ghettos and then in the work camps and then the film saves the actual concentration camps like Auschwitz uh, for the very end of the film. So even this really broader view of the war, we're kind of going on an arc through, uh, even as we're going through the character arc of Oscar Schindler and of uh, and and all of these other kinds of characters. So it's just, there's so many layers and they're all, built and feed off of each other so masterfully. I mean, of course, even at this point, you don't expect anything less from uh, Steven Spielberg, but this is why it is one of his uh, crowning achievements, really, in film.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely um, kind of one of his signature movies, in a way fairly different from a lot of other ones he's made.
1: Maybe Uh, not like, yeah, like the most popular or the first one that you think of, but it, and it is different from those films like Raiders or
0: Jurassic Park and stuff like that. Because when you think of Spielberg, you think of fun. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But this is, this is, uh, this is not a fun movie. This is the least family-friendly
1: Spielberg film uh, that I can
0: think of at all. I feel like this is one of the the few times we can unequivocally call a movie unfun. Um, (laughs) You're right. This is an unfun movie, um, but it is an important movie, uh, and it often ends up on one of those one of the lists of the top 100. I think it's on the AFI top 100, 100 Years 100 movies, the most recent one they've come out with. Um, it's definitely on a lot of top 100s. It's in the top 200 on IMDb, uh, on Letterboxd, all sorts of ranking sites. It's definitely regarded as one of the more important movies out there. Um, on one of the most important topics in history. Um, so, definitely worth the watch if you haven't seen it, uh, but I'm assuming you have because you're listening to our podcast, uh, which shows you have an interest in movies. Uh, but if some of your friends haven't seen it, maybe show it to them. But it is one of those movies
1: that like you have to be mentally prepared for before you just start watching
0: it. True. Yeah. No, don't <laughs> uh, be like, hey, guys, you want like to watch a, party a movie? movie. Yeah. Uh, hey, everybody come over to my house. Let's watch a movie.
1: Oh, we're going to have popcorn yeah. and you know, all kinds of fun. Nope. Um, it's a, Hey, let's, let's, uh, take a moment to actually think about one of the most horrific events in human history, um, through the lens. And again, this is a film that puts this huge conflict on to a very, very human, uh, an intimate level. Um, And I, again, this is a film that, you know, not only shows Oscar Schindler and someone who was a bystander who turned into, um, you know, what arguably way, way, way more
0: complicit bystander even.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But way he, he goes from that to being what many, many, many more people in Europe at the time should have become, uh, in whatever capacity that was possible. Um, and so it's, it's the message of hope and it's a message of you know heaven forbid this anything like this ever happen again this is how you should act and not you know Oscar Schindler at the beginning of the film so it's again that goes into why it's such an important film just to exist on a on a character and moral level
0: oh 100% uh now unless you have any objections Jonathan I propose that we move on to overall notes let's do it all right So, overall, let's actually, before
1: we, before we move on from Schindler's list, let's talk about uh, the very, very end, um, because that's going to be uh, a really nice kind of bridge into next time's episode, which we'll talk to, we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, what are your thoughts on the uh, actual bringing in of the Schindler Jews, as they're called in the film, uh, those who settled in. Czechoslovakia after the war ended and uh, Schindler's factory was liberated and kind of started an entire population, which as the film makes a point to uh, highlight the population um, that stems from those that Oscar Schindler saved is ended up being a larger uh, number of Jews than those that actually survived in Poland after World War II.
0: Uh, I thought... It was a nice touch. It was important to remind people at the end of the movie that it was real. Um, and I think it was a nice thing for those families who were willing to participate to do. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Again, it strips the numbers away. Yeah, it does. And it, it strips, it it, you it strips the Hollywood facade off of it as well.
0: And it was nice to see like, the further that the growing effect of what he had of what, what he did had on the world. Like you see not only these people, but their families as well. Like, yeah, uh, it wasn't in all vain. those people that wouldn't have existed. Like the person humanity persisted in part because of Oscar Schindler. And that's yeah. kind of the thing that you see and, and people like him and it encourages people to be that bold and brave. Hopefully not in that situation. Cause hopefully no one will ever have to be in that situation. But in their thoughts and the way they act in the world in the same worldview.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And again, going into the fact of the film being somewhat influenced by films like Shoah, which we're going to talk about next week, just kind of bringing that little documentary element into it and uh, as much as possible, you know, using the people who were still alive in 1996 Uh, because again, we're almost to the point where you cannot do that. You can't include that in your World War II movie that's coming out in 2019 or 2020 because there's no one left who has that direct of a connection to those events. And so including that is kind of important just because there's there's a limited amount of time that, that that's even an option. Certainly. So, yeah, now we can move on into uh, our overall notes and talk about uh, the three of these films as a perspective on World War II that is less sensational. Um, I won't say less thoughtful because it's not that our other films did not have thought put into them, but they're driven very much by the, um, the themes and the uh more um cerebral aspects of them than by the action-y or uh you know sensational tabloid politics kind of view like we have been looking at.
0: Yeah, that's true. We have um there definitely are those solemn points like in the action movies we talked about last time on the show. Um but in here that's but in these drama films that's pretty much all it's about. We're looking at the themes. We're looking at the impact. We're looking at what this means on a larger scale and hope, hopefully giving the audience a way to internalize that and kind of understand the impact of what essentially is a large scale tragedy.
1: Yeah. Now, what um, objectively and hopefully irreputably is a large scale tragedy. Um, so, yeah, and, and the way that these films approach it requires uh, an element of solemnity that is hard to do. It's hard to make a film like the great escape with that kind of, I don't want to say like flippant or fun, but the, the elements of the great escape that make it so exciting are the action parts. And it's not so much about, you know, let's consider what, it means for these soldiers to get out and what that what effect that has on all the people who are dying at the hands of the Nazis and that kind of thing. You know, that's more uh, look at the the bravery and and uh, uh, resourcefulness of these uh, trained officers and stuff like that um, just kind of put in the context of World War Two. But this is very much about like what is the impact of a single person on this huge tragedy that is for the most part, going to continue with or without your efforts and to what extent can a single person uh, make an influence. And again, like going back to the end of Schindler's list where it's him trying to reconcile the fact that enough can never be done after something so horrific has happened. The only thing that can be done is for it to uh, stop, you know, and however early it stops, it has to stop or else a million Oscar Schindlers are not going to change anything unless, you know, something really drastic has to happen. And that's, you know, that's why D-Day had to happen. That's why the war kind of, you know, ended the way it did, because without really, really drastic action, something so drastic can't be stopped by individuals like even as heroic as Oscar Schindler was, you know? And so these are all just like really big types of questions and conflicts that films like this are able to ask.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like one of the fundamental points of all of these films, um, other than, you know, remembrance and consideration, um, is to make sure that nothing like these events ever 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 happens again.
1: Yeah. Which we keep coming back to, but it's really, really important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No no more world wars, please, no more genocides if possible. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that we have to remember that this is this this type of thinking has become very ingrained in our culture as those of us who have access to this material. Um But not so much to other parts of the world that don't have access to to reflections on this drama or just people who don't pay attention, who don't. Yeah, like look it's at art. out there. So, yeah. This, the, I mean, the one excuses
1: of the, for this happening again just kind of dwindle
0: over yeah, time. Yeah, this, this is, you know, one of the points of arts is to memorialize in a way, and mem- memorials are. In a way, shape, or form, in art, it's supposed to make you feel a certain way and feel like this should never happen again. Very specifically, yeah. um, but yeah. this is this is definitely, I think, the heaviest of the World War II episodes so far. Um, so far, it be <laughs> there's the heaviest, one left. There's um, one left, but it's it's one. It's the heaviest so far.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we've kind of that's kind of the trajectory that we've been going with this, and I think that our series has had its own pretty nice. Um, Arc. Uh and so there's and again, you know, as we've been saying with, with each of these episodes, there's so many more um World War II dramas out there. Uh, you know, I even <laughs> I realized this uh in the past couple of weeks that like the notebook is a World War II drama. Um there's uh you know the pianist, which was just dropped on Netflix. There's um Boy in the Stripes of Pajamas, which I haven't seen yet, but I mean there's a lot of them from America, from other points in the war, um, from other countries and stuff like that that are out there. These just kind of are our top picks for really important films from a couple of different angles that show uh, the war on a very individual, uh, human, kind of civilian level, kind of taking, stripping a lot of the, the big overall politics out of it, stripping a lot of the excitement of... Battles, you know, from whatever decade or century they're in, battles always have some amount of excitement to them. And so once you've kind of gotten past that, it's back to the people. And that's what these films um, do a really good job of just, like you said, immortalizing and memorializing uh, these people who lived through this this terrible, terrible event. And next time on the show, we're going to uh, get even closer to the memorialization because we're going to be talking about uh, documentaries and we're going to be like getting into the nitty-gritty of people who were there, footage from the actual tragedy, uh, interviews with people who were involved with the tragedy and um, taking a really, uh, what as we're going to call it, a, a reflective view of the war, looking back on it, um, And so what are those films that we're talking about next time, Alex?
0: Yes, next time we'll be talking about some very heavy movies. The first of which is Night and Fog um, from 1956, which is when it's released, but it's mostly documentary footage um, of Mm -hmm. the liberation of Holocaust camps. So be prepared if you choose to watch that. Um, yeah, you could probably find it online. Only uh, it's 30 not minutes very long. long. I think it's yeah, it is like half an hour. And incredibly, it'll be the longest 30 minutes of your life. Yeah. Um, then there is Shoah from 1985, which on the other end is nine hours <laughs> long. Yeah, um, we're making up <laughs> for our, our short film
1: inclusion with the nine hour inclusion. Yes, which, which be is, is almost impossible to beat, uh, I think, as far as our filming's running runtime.
0: Yeah, unless you want to count, like, the Decalogue as one movie, then it will be impossible to beat. Um, yeah, that's and true. then, of course, finally we will be talking, the show will be a little more bearable to look at. It'll, it's a. Dis- it's no documentary it's a footage, it's only interview footage. Yeah, it's discussion of the Holocaust from the point of view of survivors, um, right. directly interviewing them. Uh, And then finally is White Light, Black Rain, which is an HBO documentary from 2007. um, And it talks about the fallout or the lead up to experience and fallout from the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with atomic bombs um, at the end of the Pacific War in 1945. It talks with survivors. There is a graphic content warning on that one as well um, not necessarily an easy watch, but it was a very interesting watch. Um, so again, very heavy, very heavy episode coming up. Yeah. It's important topics to cover. Um, when it comes to world war two, this might be the heaviest episode we ever do on the podcast. Um, if you feel up to it, we will talk to you next week. (laughs) Um if you don't, I don't know if I entirely blame you. Um, but it is going to be incredibly heavy. I think it's, it's one that, you know, as
1: far as covering world war two, we can't leave these films off because
0: these are super important when we're talking yeah. about world war two and when we're talking about the coverage of world war two through the medium of film. Super yeah. important. It's going to be a super important episode. Um, just not an easy one. It'll, it'll just be hard. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: so yeah, that'll wrap it up for this episode. Um, but I will say we're going to be posting a uh, poll on our Patreon account. Uh, and again, polls are open to everybody for what we're going to be doing after our reflection episode. Uh, and so that will be about some dynamic duos. So uh, different acting pairs who have done several films together throughout the years. So hopefully that will take us into a little bit more of a lighter tone after <laughs> this really really dark uh series of five oh, episodes it's definitely going to be lighter there's there's yeah no so way options are going to be, it would be um there. Robert Redford and Paul Newman and uh Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers and Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan so if you have an opinion on one of those duos that you feel strongly about uh head over to our Patreon page and uh and help us out and get your voice heard And then also, if you want to subscribe at our bonus podcast here, the last episode that we released over there was covering Taika Waititi's uh, recent release of Jojo Rabbit.
0: Well, that's about all the time we have
1: for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at J.S. Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger.
2: And I'm at the Blue Jay
1: 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com.
0: If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time and don't commit genocide. (laughs) All right. See ya.
1: Side note, Army of Shadows is not the movie to start after midnight.
0: No. (laughs) It's both really exciting and like a little liable to put you to sleep. Yeah, it's...
1: It's uh it's one where you have to like be really paying attention to figure out what's going on because they don't spell it out for you, and it also is not the fastest movie in the world.
0: Yeah, the but excitement, it was really good. Yeah, the excitement and it comes from you paying attention. Yeah. Which is just rude if you ask me. Like
1: <laughs> How dare you ask us to do work while we're watching movies.
0: How dare they, anyway.